Nobody wants to end up in family court, but if you do, you want an honest, experienced family law attorney by your side to help minimize the stress, mental anguish, and legal costs that divorce and custody matters bring. Welcome to In Your Best Interest. Texas divorce attorney and entrepreneur Justin Sizemore of the Sizemore Law Firm, entrepreneur Andrea Jones, freelance writer Mary Maloney and guests share insight on what to expect and how to handle family law matters, the changing landscape of family law, and living the entrepreneur's life. Now, on to the show. One of the most frequent accusations divorce lawyers hear clients make is that their ex is a narcissist. Well, there's no question that being married to a narcissist or trying to share custody with a narcissist is not a walk in the park. So what can you do? On today's episode of In Your Best Interest, the panel will discuss how to navigate divorce and child custody issues when you're dealing with a narcissist or someone with narcissistic tendencies. Thanks for joining us for this episode of In Your Best Interest. I'm Mary Maloney, and today, attorney Justin Sizemore, entrepreneur Andrea Jones, and I will discuss the challenges people face and strategies to consider when dealing with a narcissist in the midst of a family law matter or life in general. So, Justin, a lot of people accuse their exes of being narcissists, but technically not everybody is a narcissist. Um, Some have narcissistic tendencies in general. What's the difference? If you look at any kind of reporting or any online studies uh, and or talk to a psychologist, you you generally see the concept of narcissists uh, as a whole or a categorization as a narcissist as somebody who cannot um, be healed from their ailments, as we'll call them. Um, You know, when we're talking about narcissistic tendencies, the idea of being self-absorbed and feeling like that you are something that you're not. Um, and obviously accusations that get thrown around to put, paint yourself in a better light or uh, make someone feel sorry for you uh, on a regular basis, those take the form of narcissistic tendencies. The reason why I think we, we discuss the idea of narcissism not being a diagnosis unless it's fully diagnosed is uh, we talk a lot about the idea of people being able to reform through the process and giving them tools and arming them with the tools they need to move forward and progress with a co-parenting relationship. What I, what I fear a lot in situations where someone is diagnosed prematurely of narcissism or someone goes online and finds characteristics that are consistent with a narcissist um, is they, they feel like there's no hope because when you read the conclusory studies, some of the ways that we'll get into in just a minute of dealing with or how to deal with a narcissist or even narcissistic tendencies uh, it can kind of not shed a light at the end of the tunnel. So I want to be careful about the, the full diagnosis of a narcissist until we really, really vet that out um, through counseling and professionals um, and also through experiences through the child custody case. So Justin, you also talk a lot about the importance of identifying triggers and also setting boundaries when you're dealing with a narcissist. Can you explain? The, the biggest thing, um, you know, and obviously everyone has or knows somebody or has somebody who's spoken of these terms, either in their direct or immediate family or somewhere down the line a little bit. But um, I'm very big on taking a lot of information in um, and then part and parceling the things that really work uh, for the client or for you individually. So when it comes to uh, the types of narcissism, 
this is not size more professional 101 diagnosis, but there are, there are some things that you can pull from the internet, which are, you know, basically a compilation of, of traits that thousands of people have suffered from either on the victim side of it or the narcissist themselves. Um, and so when it comes to pulling some of those key things uh, that you do, I really like to um, focus on the type of narcissist we're dealing with or the type of narcissistic tendencies we're dealing with. Um, I've kind of broken them down into three categories. Uh, one, you have the type of narcissist that is uh, the, the poor me, everything uh, in my world is, is going wrong and it's all someone else's fault. Part two or type two uh, is the kind that um, really believes that everybody around them um, is inadequate um, and they are the end all be all. You, you see the big ego drivers in that, that category. They are very much uh, never going to be at fault as well. Um, but the way they, they materialize that is they kind of project themselves in a light that paints themselves in a picture of something they're not. So you see a lot of, you know, research that talks about the only child syndrome or the over, uh, the, the child that was given too many compliments and not enough reprimand growing up. Um, and they kind of take this approach to life that if you don't do what I, what I do and the way I do it, everything you're going to, uh, try to accomplish with respect to the, the kids and, or in the relationship is just wrong. And, and then the, the third one, um, is really more of kind of a hybrid of the two. Um, they paint themselves in this, uh, or they paint themselves to be this person that they're clearly not. Sometimes it is, you know, kind of a, I'm a, a, a super successful person, or I'm the greatest father or mother in the world. And they're just very uninvolved. And, and so it, it I think it's important to identify those key pieces uh, of which type of narcissist you're dealing with. So that when you get into the boundary piece, um, you really know how to set up those boundaries. So for example, in, you know, the type one narcissist where everything is sad and, and depressing and everything you do is um, just a, a situation that never really changes from just this, this point of sadness. It's, it's hard to get someone out of that depression zone, specifically when they're using it uh, as a weapon to make you feel sorry for them so that you either separate from family and friends and get into their, their category of what they really want you to be in, which is I'm in control. Um, I've separated you from all friends and family, and this is how we're going to do things from a, you know, I call it kind of a sadness approach. You also see like Munchausen by proxy, which is where you have parents get into situations where they, they're, they, they want their child to, to need them. So they're constantly coming up with these child's ailments, albeit it can be dietary, it can be physical. And, um, you know, they, they doctor shop a lot, same with psychological issues. And so, you know, when you're dealing with that, you really want to set the boundaries and get more importantly, get some court orders that um, are tighter with respect to medical, psychological and psychiatric treatment for the child. And then when it comes to, um, you know, kind of the aggressive type of narcissist, uh, those generally materialize in like we talked about, they, they project themselves to be this superhero in their own mind. And if you don't, if you don't back them up in any way, they, they start to attack and break, break apart fr uh, friendships, family, and things like that. With those type of people, it's, it's much more important to not involve them 
on a daily basis and really set some boundaries about the type of communication and how frequent the communication is. You know, that way you don't get involved um, in their little spin cycle, which then turns into complications with projecting yourself, your case forward in front of a judge. So you, you know, they, they, for example, they want you to get angry. They want you to get frustrated. They want you to compliment them. And when they're doing something wrong, they attack you. So it's that very much fight and flight mentality. And, you know, a lot of clients find it difficult because it's emotional and then they want to use this evidence and they're on the same, you know, tape recording or text message chain, really kind of pulling themselves or falling down into what the narcissist have tried to pull them back into. And it makes it hard to really paint the picture. And then it kind of looks like it's just two pe people bickering with each other when in reality, you know, you, you kind of feel like you're going crazy. <laughs> and at the end of the day, you've got to set those boundaries and set the time frame for communication so that you don't get pulled into that arena. No, but, but when you just said like not to get pulled in, like if you are a parent and the other one is a narcissist, and they constantly talk about how great they are and how bad potentially whatever the, the the guy is the narcissist and he talks about how great he is and he does everything right and you as the mother feel like you constantly bad mouth and they always talk about how bad you are how do you protect yourself and the kids from that behavior when you're living separate and getting divorced yeah i've i've actually got a case that i just got hired on yesterday and it's 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 very much in line with this this approach and we generally like to bring in an amicus attorney to those situations. And, you know, that, that financially can be hard, hard to deal with because you're paying another attorney. Um, but, but oftentimes what you're dealing with, with these narcissistic approaches is you don't have that direct evidence. You don't have the text messages and, or the direct communications, unless it's being told to a child. And nowadays, like we've talked about in other podcasts, the idea that counselors are going to get drug into court and share um, all the things that the child is sharing with the counselors is not necessarily something that's desirable for the counseling or the treatment of the child. I think a lot of counselors nowadays feel like it, it breaks the trust issues as it often does, because that gets back to the kids. Um, and even with injunctions in place against persons, which basically uh, state that the party is hereby enjoined from making disparaging remarks um, in front of the hearing distance of the child, you know, they, they, they can be direct or indirect, but with a narcissist, they do a lot of little things that over time really pull and alienate and isolate the child away from the other parent um, and or really make the child feel guilty. Um, and so it's very important to have a third party uh, that can really flesh that out. Um, and in the case that we're talking about, the, our client doesn't even want the, the supervised access or the limited access that's going on. She wants it to get back to normal. Kids are 13 and 16 years old. She's not dealing with little ones. And, you know, dad just at every, every turn has decided that he's going to convince the boys in, in let's call it obscure ways that mom is not a good mom. They need to be with their dad and, and dad knows all and dad is right. That then turns into, he's kind of a hybrid of the angry narcissist and the, the, you know, poor me narcissist as we call it. And in that situation, you really have to set up first kind of the, what I, what I think is more aligned with kind of a clearing house, clearing the mindset of the child, clearing your mindset, setting those boundaries, taking that guilt feeling out of your mind that you're doing something uh, to cause this because that's, that's narcissist 101. They want to make it your fault. They want to make you the root cause of it. And then they want to separate uh, the family members and or the child from the other parents so that they're always in the right. 
And when they, when they're not receiving that feedback, they either completely shut down and shut the parent out. Uh, so you see those situations where you're like, Hey, what time is the uh, activity or doctor's appointment? And they, they just, there's no communication. Um, or they come back with, um, you know, very gaslit responses. Um, and so I'm just really big on making sure that the communication style, uh, the frequency, the boundaries of when you communicate and just fundamentally understanding you're not going to a lot of times change their personality type. So it's more important to get the boundaries in place uh, so that you have the protective measures. There's not really, Andre, to your question, there's not really a clear way to do this. Um, you know, I'm going through it right now with family members. So um, I like to share experiences. I like to share client experiences and really kind of vet out what, um, what has worked and try some different things that might be a little bit outside the box. So in that situation, we've actually separated uh, the client uh, in, in the interactions. So where the exchange point is, uh, we actually differentiated how we do the communications and when we do them and what they can talk about. And you still have enforceability issues. So even with the, all these rules in place, you got to go enforce them oftentimes and it becomes challenging because of costs and time and proving up the case. And so I really like to get a full picture, a big picture story of the themes and then have the amicus as kind of a buffer to show that that's what's going on with the child. And then taking all of the communications as a whole, putting them together in compartmentalized themes uh, in evidence, and then uh, remembering that we've got to get the big ones out first and then just say, judge, look, here's, uh, here's another 50 examples of this, but in, in, in the interest of judicial economy and time, we can only go through four or five, but this is the theme that we're dealing with. And you can't reason with a, with a narcissist anyway. So I think from my own experience, when I went through divorce, it's easier to let them not push your buttons and just don't respond unless it's really like about a doctor's visit or something like that, because they're going to try to push your buttons and it's like you're banging your head against the wall but you can't reason with them. Whatever they say, it makes no sense, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's really hard too because you, especially when it's a close family member and keep in mind, even when you're dealing with a grandparent or, or you know, a, a mother-in-law or father-in-law or whatever else the case may be, it's not just husband and wife situations here. Those narcissists um, can take all forms, all ages. Uh, they just diagnosed them a little later in life. And so uh, the short answer is no, there's not there's not really a, a foolproof way to get them to change. And they, they make you feel crazy. I mean, and you know, they make you feel guilty and, and, you know, they say time heals all things. Well, you can't, you can't just say, Hey, I'm not going to communicate with this party at all because sometimes even in court situations, you're forced to. to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you've got to really, you've got to really establish kind of the plan. Um, I call it the upfront plan. And you think of it like, what is their reaction going to be? You're not clairvoyant, but you think what the reaction is going to be and you plan your response. You also plan your exit. So if they start taking you down that path where they're screaming at you or yelling at you or making you feel terrible and or, and or hanging up on you or not communicating at all, you have to remember, just, just express love. Hey, love you. I hope everything gets better. I'm here for you. And give them a couple of different options. We talked yesterday in a blog we did about the idea of treating it kind of like a dementia patient. And what they tell you with dementia is they give you kind of these options. So it makes it feel like it's their choice. And so when you're dealing with the issue of a counselor, for example, Hey, you know, I know I have the right to 
make these counseling decisions. I wanted to get your take on what those, what counselor you wanted to use. I don't want to use a counselor or no response. Well, that's fine. I understand your position, but these are the counselors that, that I've looked for. Uh, if you'll let me know by Wednesday at three o'clock, I'll pick one and coordinate times with you. Oftentimes what they'll do is they do that fight and flight. So they'll just shut down. Well, you're, you're covered then when you get into a courtroom, when you've, when you've taken those steps and when you're continuing to wave the white flag, just give the facts and not get into their arena what you'll find is um, that that's very easy to position to a court uh, in the form of evidence. So that kind of, that's a good way to get into one of our next questions here, um, Dustin. So how do accusations of narcissism come into play in the courtroom? I mean, how do you handle those cases? How do you prove up those cases? Um, because they can be difficult to prove, as you were alluding to earlier. We've talked before about the idea of not concluding and not speculating. Okay. So when we're when we're bringing forth facts that clearly align with narcissism, I think the biggest the, the one thing that shuts me down as a lawyer immediately or the judge down uh, pretty quickly is when you come in and say this party's a narcissist. They are you know blah blah blah. That that is not a situation that until you kind of lay out the facts that you want to just roll out with. Um, I think it's very important to lay out the issues. Like for example. Um, you know, when you're dealing with a situation where let's say one party is supposed to pick up the kids on a regular basis and they haven't been appearing and then they make it your fault. And that's a typical narcissistic trait. You don't let me see the kids. You're not letting me be involved. That's the kind of pity me or poor me approach of a narcissist. You know, in those situations, you give more in the way of options. And what you'll find with a narcissist is they're very like they're very fight and flight. So they're very retreat oriented. Um, they don't actually do what they say they're going to do. So they may have these ideas in their mind of how good of a parent they are and how involved they want to be. And then obviously when they don't meet those goals because they're not responsible and they've, they've painted this picture of themselves that they can't do or they won't do. It's very easy when you're, when you've sent these white flag text messages, Hey, we've got this birthday party here, the soccer games here. Uh, and there's just no response or a very vindictive response. That's the first thing I would say to, to really try to kill them with kindness. Uh, and that's really hard to do, especially when you've got the really angry narcissist and you know that the response is going to be this gaslit thing that's going to push your buttons. You really have to just take a step back and realize it's not you. You're not, you're not flawed. You're not crazy. Um, they make you feel that way. And what you do is number one, protect your child. And the biggest way to do that is remember that if you go back into the narcissist's arena and you allow them to pull you in there, you're going to actually be jeopardizing your ability to limit that access. And then the child is impacted. So just, I always say, picture the child, just remember, you're not dealing with a rational human. Take that, take that mindset that, that it's you and, or that you can change this person out of your um, vocabulary. It's not going to happen uh, nine times out of 10. And so you know, you can deal with a narcissist. And I think in the most extreme cases, they definitely say, Hey, sometimes it's the healthiest to cut out, to cut that person out of your life. Um, and, you know, even with supervised access, even with, uh, limited access, you can't fully cut them out. And that's the problem is that when the counselors come in and they diagnose and they give you that as the solution and the courts don't, that's where you get clients that are disgruntled with their own lawyer. They're disgruntled with the system, the counselors and everybody else. And the reality is 
I understand that it makes sense, but we've got to, we've got to deal with what we're dealing with, uh, with the facts and the fact that the courts are going to try to get parents to co-parent. They're going to try not to, uh, give someone a title that they can never heal and, and, and appear somewhat neutral because that's where we know that the child should thrive. So I need, as a, as a parent, I need evidence. So you're saying I need evidence. I, I can't come to the court and say he is a narcissist. So I need to have proof. So that proof can be text messages when I file my case for divorce, for example. Then I just need to make sure I have evidence for the attorney. Like you said, try to communicate, try to be the nice person. I always said, keep your side of the street clean, meaning you are going to do whatever's best for the child. And you communicate with the other side and they do not respond or they respond in a very bad way. Then I'll send those to my attorney. And then that's enough proof for you or how much proof do I need? Yeah, I think, I think the mis, the misconception is that a client comes in with the facts and the evidence and the solutions. I think they believe that when they're, you know, because they have the issues that they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And sometimes when there's a couple of days that go by, they can, they can really create a rational conversation with you as the attorney. But when they get back to the conversation with their significant other or the father of their child or mother of their child or spouse, and or family member, third party family member, it, it automatically sends them back into a place that they're not even aware that they're doing it. Right. So I've got a client right now. We had him on trial last week and he's a great person. He's a great guy. He does some really bonehead things sometimes, but he's, he's a really good person. But when he gets on the phone or even in open court or behind the scenes at the courthouse, he just, he can't get out of his own way and neither can she, that venom just kicks right back in. So what I would say is sit down with the attorney, go through a kind of a strategic direction of uh, what, what facts that you're going to try to prove, diagnose um, at least what your perception is of the type of narcissist, and then the theme of how that is materializing, and then get all of those pieces together. Don't try to lay traps. Don't try to be your own boss. Don't try to be your own lawyer. You know, just really, just really trust the person that you're dealing with. And then get it organized. You know, you have it in a timeline, you have the text messages, you have the recordings, you have the, the reports either in a social study uh, and or amicus testimony that come in. You have court records, depositions, um, you know, and, and that's why I say these narcissistic cases um, or situations where you're trying to uh, limit someone's access due to narcissism which oftentimes, as we said, does not heal, you know, they are built over a a lengthy period of time. They're often costly and there are a bunch of little, little things. Now, if you have the, the easy, big, big bullets, it's different, but they're often very little, small things that happen, um, very consistently and very regularly over time. And oftentimes it's silence. And, you know, how do you go in as a lawyer and say, well, silence is narcissism. Well, the answer is if you've got some parent that's been involved, or claims to be involved. And, and now all of a sudden you enroll the child in soccer, for example, and that parent didn't, didn't make the decision because they were the narcissist that was not in control. And now the child is going to be punished as a result of that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy you birthday presents. I'm not going to come to your event. I'm not going to do visitation regularly. Sometimes silence or no evidence, um, that theme can be painted uh, with broad strokes based on your communication of reaching out. And I get clients to say, well, I don't want to reach out because I know what his or her response is going to be. You have to just remember, you've got to listen to the lawyer and you've got to take yourself out of it and push, 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 push and push yourself. It's just like going to the gym. You got to, you got to work at it and it does take time and it does take energy, 
but there's, there's, there's various ways that evidence comes forth. So it's just important to get all of those themes together. And then that's when you come up with that evidence. And by the way, all the evidence you bring into a lawyer, oftentimes on those temporary orders hearings, you've got 30 minutes, 45 minutes aside, right? And you can't sit there and talk about 1500 times where you've text messaged somebody and they didn't respond to you or whatever else. That's not the way to do it. So you know, I, th I think it's important for clients to remember, sometimes it's important to save the bullets. Sometimes it's important to use them at that time. And sometimes it doesn't fit the narrative of what you're asking for right then and there. Are there any, any other mistakes people make when dealing with a narcissist? I know you talked about the fact that people try, think they're going to change them. They get into these relationships with the narcissist because they think they're going to help that person or change that person. Any other mistakes that people you see a lot making when they're dealing with some with narcissistic tendencies. Yeah, I, I think the first, another piece to that is really internalizing a lot of the guilt. I think one of the healings, we talked yesterday a little bit about the idea of what I call internal versus external factors when you're talking with a narcissist. The internal factors are what happens to you and how you cope. And the external factors are what the narcissist is doing, right? So when you're, when you're really trying to fix at least or mitigate some of the damage caused by a narcissist, I would say the first thing you do is really focus on those internal factors. That is understanding you're not going to change the boundaries you set, uh, the guilt factors that are there and, and coming up with really a plan uh, with the communication together with the exit. That's, that's what I think the five key takeaways from this podcast should be because at the end of the day, if you, if you try one and two, and then all of a sudden you're on a conversation and then they send you into orbit and you don't have an exit strategy and you don't get off the phone with them or, or get off the communication, and then they push you right back into there, you, you, you've just taken five steps backwards, right? And, and it's important for me in this job and my team to make sure that the client is making progress themselves uh, to be the best parent on our side. I don't, I, I don't worry so much about being able to heal the other side, because there are remedial measures that we can take uh, in the form of attorney's fees, in the form of limited possession and access, uh, getting all the primary rights and duties, limiting the need to even have to communicate what that looks like when you're changing schools or counseling. So the courts will take this into account. Um, and so that's the, th those are the five steps I think are the takeaways, but the biggest piece is just realizing that it's not, it's, in, it's in human nature to want to try to help somebody and get somebody through this and have two parents that love a kid, uh, to not fight, to not argue, to not have the venom that's human nature. And what narcissists are classically brilliant at is getting you to do all the things that you think you wouldn't do. They make you feel terrible, especially on the holidays, right? We got Thanksgiving coming up. You've got a family member that, you know, all of a sudden, uh, believes that you're not letting them see the kids or you're not being, uh, you know, as nice of a, a son or a, a son-in-law or whatever the case may be, you got all these times coming up. And so it's really easy to go, you know what, I'm just going to backtrack. I, 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 enough time has gone by. Let's just bury some of these boundaries. Let's go, um, and open the door back up and give them a chance. And then all of a sudden you do that. And now, now it pushes you into an arena where you're like, I knew this was going to happen. I'm so frustrated that I let my guard down. And then you get back in that boat and it's actually worse on your side because it's harder to control the motion. Now you feel like you failed again, right? And you knew that you knew that this was going to happen and you harbor that guilt. And so I, I think it's really important to make sure that you, you value your self-worth 
and you value those boundaries for your child's sake and or your sake. And in doing so, what you realize is you're not as needy um, to, or you don't need to try to rectify the situation as much with some space and some time and some boundaries. Uh, it's, it's pretty therapeutic. And then I think it's really important to talk through these issues, read about it, journal about it, uh, go to counselor counseling, because the more I read about it, when, you know, we're dealing with this inside of my own family and the more we talk about it and the more I talk with clients about it, it helps me. So I, I can't imagine that that doesn't help clients and sharing experiences. And that's, that's human nature. It's very therapeutic to do that. And sometimes I think it also helps to talk to somebody who is not in your family, somebody like a third party, some coworker that you trust or some, somebody to talk to who does not know the other person to give you a perspective. Am I crazy or is this what's going on? Because I think I was in that situation myself too. You, like you said, you doubt yourself, you question yourself because they're so great in turning it all around on you. And I think it helps to talk to somebody who does not know the other person and you share the facts and they give you a perspective. It's, it's, I, for me, it was the same way. It helps to talk to others. Yeah, definitely to validate what you're thinking and that you're not crazy. Yeah, yeah. I'm not crazy. This is not, not, not normal behavior. Yeah. This is not, you don't say that. You don't do those things. It's not normal. Well, and Mary, there's, you know, we have, we have places here, you know, Al-Anon, Harbor House, things that deal with typically in people's minds, just alcohol or drug issues or substance abuse issues. Those, those programs are very good uh, about dealing with on a much more direct and I don't want to use the word hardcore level, but, but much more direct level that they just really dive right into those issues. Cause a lot of times these substance abuse issues exist and occur because of the way a child was treated. You know, I talk a lot about the idea that, you know, when you're this quote, perfect child for a mother or a father, and then all of a sudden you develop your sense of independence. And now the, your mother or father thinks you're some bad kid. Right. And then uh, now they want to make sure that they're engaged with your grandkids in some way, shape or form. It's important to understand like this, that's not normal. And, and it, it feels abnormal when you're supposed to honor your mother and father um, or, you know, your spouse and they're doing these things to you. And you feel like, man, I, I don't know how I marry up those two issues. How am I supposed to honor my spouse or mother and father? How am I supposed to have my dignity and set boundaries and then co-parent? I mean, this is the balancing act. And there's not, there's not a one checkbox fits all solution to these things. I, I think the biggest thing too, that you got to remember is narcissists change over time in different ways that, that their narcissism materializes in different ways because they become better at it. They become more experts or, or the, the, you know, especially with the narcissist that feels uh, like they should be uh, given pats on the backs by everyone around them. They, they, they become experts on learning what fails. And then over time, what you see is they make you into this terrible person and they actually convince others around you that you are, and it, it, you can, you can internalize that pretty quickly. So I think it's important to uh, reach out to third parties and not just make the accusation to say, Hey, this is, these are our issues. And you know, these are what's going on inside of our family. And I, I just have to set these boundaries. And I hope you understand no matter what is said, I want you involved. You don't have these issues with me, even though you're his mother or you're, uh, you know, her brother or whatever the case may be, don't shut the other parties out because of one narcissist's actions, because that's exactly what they want you to do because it validates what they're, what they're stating. So I know Justin, it was important to you to talk about some of the positive outcomes that you had with your clients who are dealing with these issues. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I I I I love the idea or I love the notion when either an attorney or a client tells me that this person can't be healed or this is just a giant waste of time or um we've spent all this money and this is never going to get better. You know, there's there's certainly those those cases out there and and those people out there, but what I have found that that is just probably the coolest part about this job is when a party is able to to follow some steps and create those steps or make those steps become habits and they're able to really gain a sense of security uh, within themselves, it really it really makes it to where the impact of all of this harm that is done in a custody case is far less invasive on a person's psyche. And, and when I see when I see a person really make a transition from being down and depressed and having that guilt and really going through temporary orders hearings, a mediation and or a trial, it, it can be very therapeutic. I mean, we had a full scale war on Friday, everything you could possibly imagine in a custody case, all the things. And, and they really went at each other. And of course, she claims he's a narcissist. He claims she's a narcissist. There was drugs, there was alcohol, there was, you know, all kinds of fun stuff, uh, if you if you call it fun. And in that situation, when you got everybody in the room and they actually were able to get it out and, you know, say what they wanted to say, and then they saw the impact of the judge, when you get good judges, they really do sometimes they'll give you what we call dicta or this, the speech from the bench, uh, which is, you know, do you really want a black robe telling you how to raise your child when I don't know you? Do you really want um, the child driving the bus at both parties' households? Do you really not want you to be at your child's uh, graduation or wedding ceremonies in the future? Do you really want to spend your child's college fund? And even with narcissists um, or not people with narcissistic tendencies, there's some trigger points that 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 sometimes you know i think make them at least subside to a degree where they they know that the outcome is going to be one of, of a financial detriment or one that they're not getting any um headway with the court and so you know even if it quiets things down on their side and and then all of a sudden now your boundaries are working and they're quieted down and i've seen it right now with that case that i said that it just hired us it is unbelievable. Like if you would have seen the litany of text messages, 10, 20, 30 a day, 10, 20 calls a day. Now what you see is, okay, well, if I say this, it's going to be used against me. So with the narcissist, what they do is they're, they're trying to really strategize. And when you, when you have a bad strategy and you try to strategize, it doesn't work well. So what they do is they'll, they'll sometimes just shut down, which is exactly what we want on our end. It allows our client peace of mind and to breathe. Um, and it allows our clients to kind of keep up that boundary situation. So when they make that transition and they have, I, I call it the carrot and the stick, they got hit with the stick a little bit. And you would at first glance think that that was going to cause a lot of turmoil. It actually changes lives and it makes our parties uh, or our clients more able to deal with that other party. That's a breakthrough moment. That's a game changing moment that I just absolutely love about this job when that happens. And it's not always, and I would say it's not always frequent either. And it, and it doesn't always last, right? And so I love the idea of, of being able to reset clients in the process and really having a breakthrough. And on a final point on that, I had a client yesterday uh, hire and he's, he is, he's got drug issues. Very, very, very successful guy. Uh, she would definitely call him a narcissist. And, you know, he was just at a breaking point. 
true narcissist at a break or somebody that was called a narcissist. I don't think that he is, or I don't think he would have listened to me the way he did, uh, but checks himself into treatment rehab. Um, and we kind of fell on the sword in the beginning, you know, this is not going to be easy for him. The court's going to come back at him and, you know, kind of hit him over the head with trying to get better. And so I would say to you on the other side of that, if you if you're dealing with a narcissist and, and on the other side, just remember that some of these things actually work. And if we have to get to the point where it's full on cut the party out, that's, that's never, you're not going to like it anyway. Um, so just, let's just try Let's try our best to have an open mind to get, to get you to the finish line. So as we conclude here, Justin, your five key takeaways that you brought up earlier are really important. Um, and maybe people have grabbed a pencil by now. I think it'd be a great time just to review those. So people just take away those tips when they finish listening to this podcast. Yeah. So I, I, you know, number one, identify the type of narcissist you're dealing with. Okay. That is whether they are the emotional type, uh, whether they are the pity me, poor me type, or whether they are, they think they're God's gift to the earth type. Those are the three that I think are the most consistent ones that we see across the board. Once you identify uh, the type of narcissist you're dealing with, you set up the boundaries. So in those boundaries, you're dealing with not only how you communicate, but how frequently you communicate and type of communication. So that's really two A, B, and C. So how you communicate, type of communication, and how frequently. Uh, three, really setting up a clear path of conversation together with what you believe or perceive their responses are going to be, right? So when we talk about the type of communication, now we're dealing with the response and how you react, okay? So the reaction, um, both on an internal and external level, understanding a, you know, on the internal component, how am I going to heal myself if they say this and how, how do I react? So it's again, your reaction of that. And then, and then the external component, if they, if they get to this position, what is my exit? So the, the five is in the five is the big piece, right? You have to be able to say, what is my exit? Is my exit to give them, like we talked about with uh, dementia patients, are we going to give them options? And if they don't take an option, then we just go ahead and pick the the choice for them. Uh, or is my exit to just say, Hey, I'm sorry. You're feeling that way. Let's talk later. But you have, you don't try to get into that, the weeds with them when they're, when they're going full tilt, narcissism on you, narcissist on you, get out of the situation, get out of the conversation, push reset and give yourself some time and the time you need to get your points written down and reset and reassess what you're trying to do. So we're going to do those five things. We're going to stick with the facts. We're going to remember that there is some hope there and you got to deal with them. So let's try our best uh, to get through that. And, and I, I think what you'll find is at very minimum, the court's going to see uh, see what's going on very quickly. These judges are really, really keen on this idea of narcissism. So any final thoughts from you guys on this topic, Andrea, anything final from you being that you've experienced it firsthand? I think my, I said it before, the guilt piece, you, you are not crazy, right? This is, this is what you think. You think you are crazy because you're banging your head against the wall and you can't reason with somebody like that. So you just got to bless and release and, and just move on. It's, it's, you're not going to give, get them to understand your side of the story. It's not going to work. Just let it go and then follow Justin's steps. I think it's very helpful. Justin, any final thoughts? Yes. The holidays are coming up. Okay. So I know when you're dealing with a narcissist or a narcissistic family member, 
like Andrea said, the guilt piece is huge. The challenge we run into around the holidays is being able to get into court. Um, we've got Christmas holidays, judges take vacations, Thanksgiving coming up, and the narcissist over the holidays makes you feel even guiltier. This is a more critical time to set the boundaries uh, in place that we've talked about because you can't get into court and do things to rectify these situations. There's, you know, holiday spirits are flowing and keep in mind the narcissist is trying to be right. Okay. And even if they're wrong, they're trying to be right. So don't let them pull you into their web, especially around the holidays. And all of a sudden you end up with a tape recording of some stuff that you're not so proud of because you let them pull you into the arena. Uh, take that, take that step to set those boundaries, to remember if, if you're going to be in a setting privately or publicly, that everything you say can and will be used in, against you in a courtroom. And so you just got to really, really buckle up over these holidays. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up you guys. So if you'd like to contact the Sizemore Law Firm, you can call 817-336-4444 or visit lawyerdfw.com. We also invite you to follow the podcast and share it with friends who might find it helpful. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Thank you for listening to In Your Best Interest with Texas divorce attorney and entrepreneur, Justin Sizemore. The content presented here is provided for information only and should not be construed as legal, tax, or financial advice. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available.